And now, from our studios in Kansas City, Sci-Fi For Me Radio is live from the bunker. All right, here we go, ladies and gentlemen. It is Monday. It is December. Where did the month go? Where did the year go? Where does the time go? We'll get through this. Welcome, everybody. We are live from the bunker. Jason Hunt here along with all of you. Happy to see all of you here with us. And I want to give a shout out to the people who are listening to this program as a podcast. Uh, You can find us on a number of different podcast players. We've got people popping up in France and Slovakia and Thailand. Yeah, hello out there. Uh, Like I said, we are broadcasting live to uh, Facebook, YouTube, and uh, Odyssey. And if you want to join the chat, you are more than welcome. If you're here after the fact, you can still leave us a comment. And you can uh, always, of course, send us an email live from the bunker at sci fi for me.com. I do read every email, I do read every comment. So uh, if you have a topic you'd like to suggest or a guest that uh, you want us to invite onto the show, you are more than welcome to share that with us as well. And. Um, I want to just for a moment give a shout out to my guest and and just just preliminarily before I bring her on I want to say this has been an object lesson that I am going to use for a number of things in the future because she's done this right the book Reinception by Serena Strauss uh, it is uh, is an interesting concept and something I think we're probably going to be revisiting uh, a few different times uh, over the next few years uh, in terms of genetic enhancements and body control, mind control and alterations and whatnot. She joins us now today. Now, Serena, first of all, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. And I want to uh, I want to specifically highlight that. You are probably the, the, the object lesson, the case study that I will probably use in all of my, here's how you do this right in terms of marketing and promotion. <laughs> I, have, I have frequently had conversations with uh, staff internally here about uh, promoting the, the work. You know, sharing the links. Hey, you got to tell people about this stuff before, you know, before they show up. And over the weekend, this whole last, you know, three or four or five days, you've been posting all of these different things. You know, hey, come and see, you know, I'm going to be on this show. I'm going to be this. Here's this link. Here's. I mean, you even created some artwork for this promoting this. So kudos to you, young lady. You've got it figured out. Thank you. I didn't want to bark into the woods. (laughs) No. I, I tell you, I've got, uh, I, I'm looking at this, we, the tag popped up and I'm like, what is this? And then I look and I see you've, you've created this card. Um, I guess, I guess you made this in Canva or something. I thought, oh, well that's, that's, that's actually really proactive. <laughs> I hadn't seen that before. So, uh, so I do appreciate you, uh, you promoting, uh, the publicity of your book. <laughs> yeah, thank you. <laughs> 
So let's start with the book. It is uh, it is called Reinception. It is your fiction debut, uh, science fiction. You you've written before, but it's been in the legal sphere. You're a lawyer, uh, one of those corporate suits, and <laughs> now you're delving into sci-fi. Where did that come from? How do you how do you make the leap from corporate lawyer to well? any kind of lawyer, corporate law, criminal law, whatever, to writing science fiction about this topic probably is going to be a little bit more relevant than you might want it to be at this point, but mind control and body alterations and genetic manipulations. How do you, how do you go from one to the other? Um, it was, I mean, it was a bit of a meandering path. So my first book was, uh, I was a prosecutor in the Bronx for many years. And my first book was about my experience as a prosecutor in the Bronx. I was working in the realm of sex crime and domestic violence and focusing on crimes against children. And um, so some of how I ended up doing this was, I think, just wanting a little bit of a departure from reality. And I've been working towards fiction for a while, and the inspiration for this book in particular came from a combination of reading a book by Charles Duhigg called The Power of Habit. At the same time, I started reading about this technology called transcranial magnetic stimulation, which is currently in use to help with things like depression and is being researched in habit modification. And um, as a lawyer, I think a lot about unintended consequences and what might happen next. So I started thinking, yeah, where, you know, where could this go? <laughs> well, see, and, and I'm, I'm sitting there thinking, you know, this is, this is pretty far-fetched until now it's not. You know, it used to be science fiction gave us all of these projections forward about all of this technology that was so, so beyond us. But that gap continues to shrink uh, just little by little by little. And now here we are with digital currency and, and you're talking about, you know, devices to to alter alter mood and behavior. To somebody of my generation or probably older generations, that's kind of scary stuff because you have this danger of losing control of yourself. Right. Because any device can get hacked. And I mean, we had uh, Harry Glorickian on here not too long ago. He was talking about how AI can be used to, uh, you know, for various different ways in, in healthcare, and managing your health and, and overall thing, you know, with your Apple devices and your watches and your you know, whatever. And I'm thinking, I don't want to put any kind of implant in my in my system. I, I barely want to have all of the stuff that I've got now. You know, I'm I'm the older I get, the more cabin in the woods I want to be. Right. It, and I'm thinking, <laughs> I, how do you get to the point where people embrace this kind of thing? Is this a is this a, a, a slippery slope type of thing where all of a sudden now here we are and we're wondering how we got here? Yeah, I mean, I, it. I'm not a, a futurist, but I did a lot of reading from futurists in order to prepare for this book. And, you know, there seems to be consensus that this is where we're heading. We're already, we already have technology that's similar to this for different things, a lot of different medical advices, devices. And I think a lot of it starts out for the good. A lot of it's positive, but human nature being what it is, we take things too far, things get misused and 
I, I do think a lot about where that's going to go. I have, you know, I have kids. I think a lot about their privacy, how little privacy they have compared to, you know, what I had and how that's going to continue to erode. And, you know, again, I do think there's an inevitability to it, but I also think we really ought to be thinking about what it means and, um, you know, there, there's good and bad in all of this, and how are we going to deal with it when it comes our way? There is a, a friend of mine, uh, she was a classmate in high school. She's now a professor of psychology at San Diego State University, and she's been studying what she calls the iGen for the last 15, 20 years. And it's this generation of people who have grown up wired into the Internet. We, we have Google, we have YouTube, we have TikTok, we have our, our devices and our Apple Watches and our, and our cell phones and whatnot. And everything is at the touch of our fingers. You know, we've got, we've got it right there. You know, we, we don't have to go to the library. We're not looking it up in the World Book Encyclopedia. It's just here it is, instant gratification. And you have this whole generation of people who want it now. And they don't want to they don't want to go through the process of having to work for anything. And at the same time, we've become so dependent on these devices that, you know, you do without it. You know, say we have, you know, you look at stuff that's going on in Ukraine, for example, and if that spreads out, let's say somebody launches a nuclear attack, we've got an EMP or whatever, and all of a sudden we don't have any computers. It, I mean it far-fetched at this point, but we've become so dependent on these devices now, it's kind of hard to sit there and go, well, yeah, it's inevitable, but we don't really want it to. And and maybe maybe there's starting to be a little bit of pushback on some of the stuff, because the way you're talking about, you know, intentions for the good, but you look at what happened with social media and how that's been abused and and weaponized and you know you see what's going on now with twitter with everybody blowing a gasket because elon musk is making all these changes do is there a point where we are past the point of no return on this stuff do you think i i do think so to a degree i think we are so dependent on it and people aren't going to want to give up their technology or their convenience but it's precisely what i'm grappling with in this book. So the main character very intentionally is college age. It's a point where we first have a lot of independence. Um, you know, it's the first time we have a lot of autonomy. And she has this perception of herself as somebody who is less plugged in because she hasn't undergone this process of reinception where most other people have. But she starts to realize how how she doesn't really have freedom or independence either because she's got chips implanted in her body and they monitor things. And um, so it, it's really relevant to today and thinking about, you know, how do we grapple with our lack of privacy, our lack of autonomy, and how do we think about what we're going to do as that moves forward and progresses. And I think it's something we have to think about because to your point, we are attached to our technology. We don't want to give it up. We don't want to give up our convenience. But what are we sacrificing while we make the decisions that we want that? Yeah, I think there's a very real danger of losing a sense of self, you know, where where you have some boundaries. If, if it's just me and I'm in my space and it's, you know, my room, my house, and I'm not connected to the rest of the world, 
nobody really needs to know what I'm having for dinner tonight. You know, it's it. You don't need to know that I'm going to Cancun. You don't need to know that I just bought a book. You, all all of us, we we put so much of our private lives out there in the open online, and I think there's a we've lost sight of the risk involved in that. You know, just how intrusive because you know we we look at Facebook. We're the product. We're not the consumer on this model. We're not the we're not the customer. We're the we're the 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 product being sold to the advertisers. I think I think it's it's something where we really need to start pulling back on this stuff a little bit. But how do you do that? Yeah, and it's it's something I don't really have a good answer for about how you pull back on it. But I, you know, hopefully if I've done a good book with the job, it makes a, a good job with the book. It makes people start to question these things. And it really made me question some of the things I personally believed. You know, as a former child abuse prosecutor, for example, I used to think I would do anything to keep my kids safe, like put a, you know, put a GPS chip in them. So I always know where they are and that they're okay. And um, because of the things I saw, there's a lot of, you know, I think a lot of parents are, are frightened of a lot of things all the time, but right. it's definitely exacerbated for me because of what I saw. But when I started really thinking about, you know, what does that mean for them and for their lives and for their ability to, you know, to grow and mature and progress and make their own decisions, there has to be a limit. And I think a lot about a lot of this book is about thinking about, you know, where do we draw those lines and what's the limit? And especially as parents, um, this is, you know, this is a character who her parents were making decisions for her until now about will or won't she be modified? Will or won't there be a chip in her? And all of a sudden she can make these decisions for herself. So I think, you know, we have to make these decisions for ourselves, but also thinking about as parents, what decisions are we making for the, our kids and what does that mean for them? You know, if we're posting their pictures on social media, right, we're making decisions for them about how we're putting them in the public. Right, um, right. So, yeah, so a lot of this is just about, about questioning that and questioning what's good and when do you cross the line with something good setting, suddenly being misused or, or used for the purposes that it wasn't intended for. Yeah. Well, and I think uh, the other thing, too, is is you have to be careful as an author because if you're going in there and saying, you know, we're going to question all of these things. So you've obviously got not necessarily an agenda, but you have an agenda. You have a, a specific point that you're trying to make with this. Now you have the challenge of mixing that message, as it were, into the narrative of the fiction. And that's that's kind of a fine line to tread because this day and age, and we've seen this conversation happen in a number of different places, you know, especially when it, go, it comes to things like the Hugo Awards, for example, and, and the, the literary crowd in the, in the science fiction sphere, where message takes priority over story and how do you how do you find that balance between telling the good story that you want to tell to entertain people and yes I want to buy this book because it's a fun read and I enjoy the story but you also have a point that you need to make that you're trying to make whether it's in the subtext or if it's right there out in front how do you find that balance uh, it's a really good question I mean I, I think good science fiction especially 
speculative science fiction, you're, you know, you're trying to predict and imagine, and that's part of the fun and part of the process. Um, really, the bottom line is it has to be, there has to be a storyline. You have to have a character that people can connect to on some level who is trying to get, you know, from A to B in the story so that you're enjoying the story. Um, and, you know, my, my agenda, I think, is, is a little more vague, I think, than some of them, because I'm, I'm not really trying to push my, my thinking or my perspective on people. I'm, I'm trying to put people in the shoes of this character where she herself is kind of struggling with, how do I navigate this world and what do I want from it? And I think that's something that anybody can relate to, but especially teenagers can relate to. Yeah, I think the scariest part for me at this point, I'm about, uh, I'm maybe about a third of the way through. There is a very brief mention at, at one point. This is set in the year 2126. Right. And there is a scene where there's a mention that they stopped making printed books about 100 years ago. And I'm thinking, okay, we're about, we're about five or six years away from when they stopped making books. And that, to me, is probably the worst aspect of any future <laughs> you know that we've seen this in in a number of different uh science fiction stories where you know the printed book is such a rarity and i thought you know it kind of it kind of will be because nowadays what do we do we have our we have our ipads and our and our kindles and we're reading all of these books by by pdf and moby and you know all these all these electronic editions which are controlled by somebody else. I mean, if you've got your token and you've paid your money and you've got your copy of this book, but it's not a physical copy of your book, they can take it away. They can delete it. <laughs> and they can sit there and say, well, you know what? Your social media activity has kind of been a little questionable. We're not going to give you access to your online library. And take that a step further. We're not going to give you access to your bank account. You know, because that's the concern when it comes to, you know, things like digital currency and digital libraries and whatnot. Somebody else can take that away from you. Is that, I'm not, I'm not, I don't want to give too much away in the book because I haven't gotten very far, but is that a concern here that's addressed in the book? Do you get into that a little bit? A little bit. I mean, author's worst nightmare. You're kind of the best moment as an author is the first time you you hold your book. And I think you do lose something not being able to hold hold a book. And I'm one of those people who I, I mark books up. And if there's a line I love, I'll mark that up and I dog ear them and then I give them to other people with, you know, with all my comments. So I do think that would be a, a very sad thing. But we're already seeing shortages, paper shortages, uh, things like that. Yeah. Um, the in in the book, uh, I do talk about the the main character is a student at Columbia University. So Columbia still ex exists a hundred years from now, and so does Butler Library, which is um, the big library at Columbia. And she talks about it as a mausoleum, basically that it's you know kind of the last place where you can go, touch a book and take one out, and that most people feel like it's irrelevant. It's this relic, and the things she needs even to do her work at school can't even be found in a library any anymore. They're, they're only found in other resources that she has other technology she has. So it is, you know, I, I do kind of talk about that and think about that and, and um, missing books and her, her being kind of in awe of, of seeing them in person. Yeah. 
you know, you, you look at some of these, a lot of these dystopian future type stories where books are gone and you have the people, you know, the, the crazy wild eyed loner in the, in the corner back over here in the bunker who's hoarded all of this stuff. And now, now he's got all of the books and there's value in them again. And I'm thinking, you know, I probably should take any of my extra discretionary income and go to the bookstore and just start and just start grabbing the classics because those they're going to be gone. You know, everything's everything's going electronic and it just takes one little thing and all those little ones and zeros are 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 poof out of here gone. I don't know. Yeah, and, just, and books used to be a rare thing and yeah, it would be sad if they were a rare thing again, but I you know, I think it's, you know, between between thinking about just what's practical and easy for people. It's quick and easy to download a book. It's cheaper. And also just thinking about resources. Um, You know, I hope paper books won't go away completely, but I I think we'll probably see less and less of them. I I am encouraged a bit by the resurgence in interest in vinyl and VHS though. So maybe, (laughs) maybe there's hope. I don't know. All right. Keely in the chat says, if I was an author, I'd want to hold my book that I wrote. I also would want the movie based on my book to be true to the book. A lot of a lot of first first announcements of books that we report on here, you know, brand new book hasn't yet been published, but there's already a movie deal. Has have there been conversations about uh, reinception going to other media yet? Uh, there's there's been some interest, and it's something um, my publisher hopes to do with the book at some point. I'd I'd love to see the, the book head in that direction. Um, We've really been focused on launching the book and getting out there, and that'll, you know, that'll hopefully be the next step. Yeah. Uh, Douglas says here, I was liking Suzanne Collins' Hunger Games, but the new book and the film sound awful. <laughs> that's that's a concern, though, because, you know, the control of the material, when you get adapt, you know, the, the adaptation comes and things get filtered and there are now other people's agendas that start getting in here and you know faithful to the source material is almost a rarity at this point are has that been a conversation so that you've had with the publishers so far if anybody wants to adapt this as a movie it's got to it's got to follow it's got to follow the book it's got to stay true to the book do you have concerns about that has that been a conversation yet uh, you know, I've thought about it. My first book, Bronx DA, was optioned um, by CBS Paramount as a TV pilot. And I did, um, I worked with a TV writer on that. It's, you know, it's not what I do. It wasn't my background and it is a different skill set. And I was working with somebody who was a terrific TV writer. She's gone on to be really successful. Um, and the show, as imagined, deviated significantly from the book, it was fiction, right? You know, my, my cases were real. This was fiction. Um, and the cases had to be kind of like exaggerated and more excited for the purposes of, of making it something people would want to watch. Um, but I was okay with that because going in, I accepted that this is what, you know, this is what we're trying to do with this. And I'm working with somebody who has experience in this realm and is going to do a better job than I am writing a TV show. I think in terms of, of changing this, I've thought about, there are some authors who retain the right to at least have a go at writing 
the film. I think Jillian uh, Flynn did that and and ended up being able to to write the screenplay for her book. So I, you know, I'd love to see it go to screen. I'd love to have you know enough control to to be happy with the outcome and to hope it'll be true to the book. But you know, the book's also about 300 pages. And I think your average, you know, screenplay boils down to about 90 pages. So it, it can't be the same unless right. you're going to make three movies out of one book. You have to kind of, you have to give some things up, but um, I, I feel like you can get to the the right place with the right people. And this is the first of three. Is that right? You've got a trilogy planned on this? Correct. Yeah. Now, does that also, uh, allow for the possibility of additional or is it just going to be three books and you're done and you move on to something else? I think this one will be three and done. Um, it's, it's a very clear arc to me. There's a, a very clear start, middle and finish to the story. So I, I don't really see there being further books or prequels or, or anything like that. Um, and I have some, some other things I'm working on or in the process, but you know, you never know, <laughs> you never know what'll happen down the road. Right. <laughs> right. Now, excuse me. It is, are there are there specific characters when you when you're starting when you're starting the plan for this? You've got your main character. She's 20 years old. She's a student. Where was your starting point for the world building in terms of your characters, your settings? It's in New York. It's in it's in a very different New York from what we've got now, uh, but not so much. I mean, there's there's places there that it's you can recognize it and project forward. Yeah, I can see how that could end up looking like this. And then you've got these various different characters who are in different sta stages of modification or not. How much you're talking about re reading about this kind of technology? What other things were you having to do for the world building and making sure that you've got characters that speak to you and, and flow into this story? Yeah, so the I mean, the book is far enough in the future that I, things I think are going to be very different, but it's also near enough in the future that I think the world would still be recognizable. So I'm not, it's not a space story. It's not fantasy where I'm completely inventing a world or taking the reader to a different place. I'm taking the reader to New York 100 years in the future. And the way we build societies and civilization is we build on the foundation of what's already there. We use that infrastructure. So when I was thinking about what is this going to look like, I did a lot of research on what might New York City look like 100 years from now. And a lot of that predicts flooding and putting up flood barriers and things like that. So that was my starting place. What happens, for example, to our transportation if the subway system's flooded, which is already happening in New York. So um, I have society divided into a caste system and the people in the lower caste are actually using that ground level of the city and those flooded subway tunnels to to get around so you know people are, are using what's already there and the people who are more successful are, are moving up they're building above that um you know there's a lot of talk uh, in the future about um, farming in cities, roof farms. So that's in the landscape too. How are we going to make food for these people? How are we going to protect them from exposure? So it's really envisioning a stratified New York City where one level of society is literally living above another level of society and we're building on the foundation of what's already there. Now, 
a lot of people would say, some people have said that we're kind of already there, where you have basically a class structure, at least here in the United States. I know, I know we have them in other countries, but we're starting to see that here where you have, you know, rules for thee and not for me because you have the elites, you know, the very, very rich Jeff Bezos, Bill Gates types, plus your your elected politicians in Washington and, you know, the inside the Beltway gang, you know, your your lobbyists and your, your Congress and, and that sort of strata, you know, that, that sort of group. And then all of the other people out here. And there's this there's this two-tiered system here where we get treated one way and we have a whole set of rules applied to us in in this in this structure. And these people up here, not so much. It, it, do you were you projecting forward from that? Have you noticed that kind of thing now? Are we closer to that than than we should be? I think we are. I mean, one thing I tried to do with the book was take um, some things out of the equation. So skin color is taken out of the equation because people can manipulate their skin color. You can be whatever color you want to be, you can be multicolored, you can put patterns in your skin. So you can meet somebody and you don't know how they were born or what they look like. They're, you know, they're so modified that that part ceases to matter. And kind of my sad conclusion looking not just at what things are like today, but if you look at history is that we as humans find ways to divide ourselves. So if we're not going to divide ourselves um, one way, we're going to divide ourselves another way. So it is, you know, it is really a socioeconomic division that they're struggling with. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's kind of the history of the world, <laughs> not just today, sadly. <laughs> right. But and, and that leads me to another question I want to get to. But first of all, we're going to take a real quick break so I can tell Google where to interrupt us. When we get back, we will continue our conversation with Serena Strauss right after this. Stand by. You're listening to Sci-Fi For Me Radio. Until you unsubscribe in a sudden but inevitable betrayal. It's like, okay, hold on. You've got somebody, and all he does is put on some glasses and slicks back his hair, and nobody knows who he is. Nobody recognizes him. It's, 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 it's like that, that, uh, that scene in, in the Green Lantern movie where she looks at him and is like, How? You know, like, you just put on a mask and you expect me not to recognize you? The H2O Podcast, Monday night at 8, only on Sci-Fi for Me TV. Good morning, Multiverse. Saturday morning at 11, 10 Central, only on Sci-Fi for Me TV. We are back live from the bunker, and yeah, there's there's one of the one of the signs in the uh, in the office there. Due to the current workload, the light at the end of the tunnel has been switched off, and uh, that I think it's probably more days of the week than I care to count. Uh, we are talking with Serena Strauss. She is the author of the brand new debut novel, Reinception. It is her first fiction work, although this is not her very first uh, writing project. But let me let me go back to what you were talking about right before the break, as far as the the separation of, of people, the the way that we 
the way that we stay in our little groups and we stay divided. How much of that is self-inflicted? How much of that is we do it to ourselves, and how much of that is the upper elites making us divided and and you know the more we the more we fight each other we're not fighting them um you know interesting question i i think it's probably a combination and i also think sometimes what we want to do and what we wish we would do aren't the same as as what we actually do and i, I think some of it is just access and who we're exposed to and who we're around, who we get to meet in our day-to-day life. And I think sometimes if you want to kind of break out of, of your, you know, social circle or your social contracts construct, you need to, um, you need to seek to do that. It's not going to find you. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think it's really a matter of, of putting yourself out there and wanting to, to break those barriers. It's, you know, it's easy to talk about, it's easy to hope for, but actually doing it is, is a very different thing. And, you know, being a, a lawyer and working in corporate law and being a prosecutor in the Bronx were very different things and exposed me to very different people and experiences. So I, I do think it, you know, it's our obligation as individuals to to get out there and to break down those barriers, and nobody's going to do it for us. Now, your lead character, uh, let me make sure I get this pronounced right, Leandria. Am mm-hmm. I am I saying that right? Yes. Uh, she she's in this. Yeah, I want to understand people mode. She's you know I'm I'm not going to hold any preconceived notions, but she does come up against expectations and preconceived notions and, and such is she is she kind of a self-insert for you how much how much of Serena Strauss is in Leandria um I don't know if it's so much me as um I think a lot of people her age where you're starting to think about what your power is in the world as an individual. So it's one thing to talk about doing things and talk about changing things. And it's another thing to actually put yourself out there and do it. And she is feeling like she doesn't really have the power to do anything. You know, she can go to a protest, she can talk about it, but can she as one person actually make a difference? And I, I think that that's a pretty common experience for people at that age to really grapple with, well, you know, what can I really do and how can I do it? Um, so, yeah, I think it's more of a common experience than my my personal experience. But, you know, where I'd say, um, you know, going back to talking about my old job, talking about making a difference and being in law school and saying, what can I do with a law degree besides go to a big firm and make money? I made a decision to to go and be a public servant. Um and realize that I could make a difference. You know, am I changing the world? No, but did I change individual lives? Yes, I think I did. So learning that you have that power and that you that one person can make a difference, I think is is an important an important place to come to. And um, I, you know, I think it's relatable for a lot of people, and hopefully hopeful. Yeah. Now, and that's and that kind of reflects a little bit on what I've what I've said here a number of times. the The individual, I think, 
a lot of times we don't realize how much power and control we could possibly have. I mean, you look at things like uh, like the midterm elections, for example, where you had a number of Gen Zs and millennials voting a certain way, and real or not, uh, the suspicion is they voted for the people who said they could get rid of their, their school debt, and they got lied to, and now there's not going to be any forgiveness of school debt. And what do you mean we voted for these people, and they're not going to give us what we want? They, they start to realize that it's a little bit more complicated than they, than they might want it to be. And we have this power with how much we spend, where we spend our money, where we put our votes, where we put our time. And the younger people, while they need to realize that they have that, they also need to be informed. I mean, they need to be, they need to be paying attention. And how do you do that? How, how, do you, how do you encourage them to get off of TikTok and pay attention to what's going on around them? Because I don't know that they're making informed choices. But, you know, that, that's probably not inherent just to that generation. There's a lot of people out there that are not paying attention, I would think. Yeah, well, I think that that's true. But I, I also think it's really hard to, to know what... Um, a fair and impartial resources anymore. Um, it's it's hard to find impartial resources. It's hard to find information that's good information. Um, right. So I, I think one of the best things kids could be learning in school, for example, is how do you vet a resource? How do you determine if a resource is legitimate or if the information is objective or not objective? I think you know I think it's okay to read things and learn things that aren't objective, that have opinions, even things that aren't true as long as you understand that that's what you're reading um so yeah I, I think understanding how to evaluate resources and how to evaluate what you're being told i think it's also important to listen to other opinions a lot of people are, are so f focused on you know on on their opinion and and their storyline that they're not kind of open to you know, listening to other people or, or reading other stuff or finding out, you know, maybe there's, maybe there's another way to think about this. Um, so it's hard. We're, we're flooded with, we're flooded with a lot of information and a, a lot of it's biased opinions and not good information. <laughs> now, now you're, you're, you're towing a line right there. You're skating on the edge because here you are talking about diversity of thought and I'm not sure that that's kind of an acceptable politically correct uh, mindset there, Serena. Are you worried about uh, people coming after you, the cancel cult coming after you at all for, for those dangerous thoughts? <laughs> I mean, I don't think so. I, I tried pretty carefully in the book to not, it, it's not about my personal opinion. It's not about my uh, legal agenda. I think it's about thinking about things. I think it's about thinking about unintended consequences. So going back to what we talked about earlier, if, if I'm saying, you know, as a parent, I want to put all these protections in place to protect my child, that's, you know, that's a good thing on its surface. Of course, we want to protect our children. Of course, we want to, you know, keep them from harm. But it, but at what point have you gone too far? At what point are you taking away their autonomy or their freedom or their privacy? And, you know, to a degree, maybe it's okay to do that a little bit with your child, but how far should you go? So 
it's really not about my agenda. It's about getting people to think. Yeah. Um, you know, and again, hopefully it's just a good story. And, and in the process of reading the story, people are thinking, wow, you know, I never really thought about it that way. Well, and the other part, too, is your readers are coming to these stories with various different life experiences of their own. And, you know, you've got uh, uh, Keely in the chat earlier was asking about, you know, with you being a parent, what your thoughts are would say, like for Disney, for example. And we have all of the blowback with the stuff that's happened in Florida. And now we've got the Balenciaga stuff that's coming out. And, you know, all of these different things where it's like, ooh, that's kind of creepy. And, and wait, they're doing what with kids? And, and, and as a parent, now you're sitting there at a whole other level. Like what you're talking about, yes, you want to protect your kids, you want to do this, how much is too much, but then you have these other organizations that are using this stuff to justify, you know, command and control procedures where we're going to take over and and we'll take care of your kids and we'll tell them what to think and how to think. And you're right, the schools are not teaching critical thinking skills. We're not teaching discernment of truth and you know I, I say I say the word discernment a lot of times that's used in a in a theological doctrinal type of application but discernment is really a, a an important part of like you say vetting your sources trying to figure out who's telling you the truth and who's telling you you know a, a little bit of a truth but not quite so much or we use some truth to obfuscate the the rest of the stuff it's it's one of these little sticky things it's kind of again makes me want to go to the cabin in the woods and just disengage it's i don't know yeah there's not a a good answer for that what's that i said there's not a good answer for that i don't think there's not a good answer and you know i'm a little bit of a loner so i'll i'll go to the woods and you know happily (laughs) write my life away um but you know i think you know, I don't want to get into my my parenting advice <laughs> a little, <laughs> little too off topic, but I think you know it's about dialogue, it's about conversation. Um, I think kids, especially now, see things and read things and are exposed to things that we can't control. So uh, I'm less about controlling it, and more about talking about it and ha- you know having a conversation about it. Right. Does does there ever come a point where you think? maybe things have kind of gone too far in any one particular direction and you see what's happening in this book inevitable or, or, or is there a way that we can turn away from some of this stuff? Because I'm, I'm looking at some of the stuff that's in this book and I'm thinking, I don't, I don't know that I want to live in that society. Yeah. I don't, I don't know that I'd want to live in that society either. I mean, there's, there's, um, a dichotomy because some things are are better you know healthcare is better resources are better we're you know in a world where we're reducing waste instead of adding to it where there's no war so on the surface it seems very utopian but as you dig into it you start to find out that um information is guarded and people aren't you know there's a lot of loss of freedom that comes with all all these positives so it's not all bad and it's not all good, but it definitely appears better than it really is once you really kind of start digging into it. And Leandria is struggling with, she she comes into information that she could use 
to um, basically take down reinception. And now she has to grapple with what's the fallout of that going to be? Because it, it could topple her, it could topple her society. And does she really want to do that? It's what, what is freedom worth? You know, how much damage are you willing to do for your freedom? So it's something that she's struggling with. And I, you know, I, I, you know, I think it's kind of an exaggeration because it's, it's a novel of what we're already dealing with, you know, how far will you go um, past the benefits of something and, and towards when it starts to become harmful. And, you know, like you said, I don't, I don't think there's a a good answer, but I do think about it a lot in this book um, from a legal perspective and laws that we put into place to control things and when that is or isn't a good or bad thing. Um, You know, laws aren't, precision instruments and we we can't use them to solve every problem um so you know i I think about that a lot too what are what are we doing today how how is that going to play out in the future and is that going to be good or bad for us in the wake of the changes going on over at twitter and the the idea here that facebook makes us the product and you've got the metaverse that's out there they spend 15 billion dollars on this thing it's kind of a boondoggle there's a lot of uh, discussion about Section 230 of the Communications Act, and you know, are these are these social media platforms actual pass-through platforms, and they're protected from liability, or are they publishers, in which case they're responsible for everything? And you know, you being a lawyer, you've probably had some exposure to this kind of of debate. Whether you know. Do they take it too far or do they uh, do not go far enough? But you're talking, you're right. Laws don't necessarily fix things or break things. It's the enforcement or lack thereof, I think, more than anything else. And it's such a, a sporadic back and forth, will they or won't they, as far as Section 230 goes. Is this thing useful or not? And can it? Are you going to enforce it or not? And if you enforce it, is it going to be across the board at everybody? And what does that look like? You know, these these kind of things. Did you come across those those discussions in your research for for setting up the the environment that you're in here for this for this first book? Not for the book, but it's definitely been coming up in the wake of writing the book. It comes up in conversation a lot. So. You know, there's the unintended consequence um, to me of my novel, <laughs> but um, I, 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 my just personal experience is that we often already have laws in place or laws on the book that address most of the situations um, we confront, and that adding new laws doesn't always solve the problem. And a, a lot of what law is about is interpretation. So, um, you know, no law can kind of account for every outcome or the way everything's going to go. So we end up spending, you know, decades interpreting that and looking at how other people interpret it. And are we going to follow that or not follow that? Um, So, I mean, to give a a concrete example, there was, um, you know, several years ago in the wake of a child going missing and being found murdered, there was a big push to put a law into place that would criminalize parents or or people not reporting a child missing within a certain amount of time. And on the surface, that seems like a great idea. Like, of course, if a child goes missing, you should report it. But if you start playing that out and thinking about unintended consequences, maybe people who would otherwise, maybe there's a reason something wasn't reported that was a good reason and not a sinister reason. 
And now you have criminalized the fact that that wasn't reported and maybe people won't report because they're afraid they're going to be held accountable. Right. And there are also already laws in place to address something like that. If you have put a child in danger, there are child endangerment laws. You don't need a whole new law just for this one particular circumstance. Um, so I think when you, when you're talking about, um, Twitter and, and laws around, you know, free speech and accountability, I, I think we actually already have laws in place to deal with, we have laws in place to deal with wrongdoing in corporate environments and the responsibility of leadership in those corporations. And I, I don't, I don't really feel like we need a whole new law for it, but that's just my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and, you know, of course you've got, uh, various different uh, aspects of, uh, of people acting on political agendas in terms of, well, we're going to enforce this law for you, but not for him, and maybe for her, but, you know, we'll, we'll take it as, as we go. The, the selectivity of it, I think, uh, has a lot of people kind of jaded at this point. Uh, where, you know, yes, there's a law. Why aren't you enforcing the law? Why aren't people being arrested for breaking this breaking this law? Why, you know, we we, we get all these details of, of crimes being committed, whether it's, you know, whether it's the Twitter stuff or, or Epstein Island or, or any of these kind of things. And we're like, why aren't people in jail? You know, you look at the FTX thing, you know, that Bernie Madoff was in, in jail 24 hours after this Ponzi scheme was revealed. And, and you've got Sam Bankman Freed still walking around and and giving interviews and he's not behind bars. You know, it's it's this selective enforcement, I think, has a lot of people frustrated. And, you know, what about mentioned swatting? You know, that's another thing where you have people that are targeted for attack be, just simply because they say something on YouTube that people don't like. Yeah, and and it's and it's getting to be almost kind of a wild wild west situation here because you don't know whether a law is going to be enforced or not. That's crazy times. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, I guess um, it, it it's always going to be subjective to a degree, but also you know, having been in law enforcement, I, I I'm always hesitant to assume what's going on behind the scenes or that it's necessarily biased decision because often there are things going on behind the scenes that the public's not aware of, uh, or there might be, for example, laws, criminal law varies drastically from state to state. And what I can do in New York could be very different in terms of prosecuting a case that, than somebody can do in Virginia. I, I might not necessarily have the t same tools available to me. So, um, you know, going back to vetting resources and what we're hearing and, and, wanting to know whether or not we're being told the truth. Um, I'm just always without mind knowing what's really going on or behind the scenes. I, I try to reserve judgment. I try to be, you know, I try to be objective and, you know, from a writer's perspective, I, I think my main feeling about Twitter is writers, we use our words. That's how we communicate. And um, it's sad to me if a, a, a tool that is really, you know, powerful and positive for authors ceases to be um, that kind of positive platform for communication where we can just use our words um, to to collaborate and communicate and build a community. So the the book, before before we get into all of the different social media places where you are, the book here is called Reinception. It is out. It's out now, I think, right? Yep, it's out. Okay. And it is the first of a trilogy 
What should we expect? I'm, I'm, I'm reading this. Where does it go? Is this, is this going to be kind of a, um, you know, book number two is The Empire Strikes Back and it gets really dark and, and what's going to happen to our heroes type of thing? You said you've got the entire thing arced out and mapped out, right? When, yes. when does the second book drop? Hopefully within a year. I, um, I'm, I'm starting to write it. Okay. All right. Now we've mentioned social media. Serena is on Twitter. You can find her at Serena Strauss. She's also on Facebook. She's got a page over there and uh, over in Instagram and her website, serenastrauss.com. Of course, we've got links to all of these in the, the show notes. Um, what besides this trilogy are you thinking about doing? What's next past this? Uh, well, I'm also working on a young adult alien invasion story that's just about ready to get submitted, um, and then now, also an adult. Is this a is this a is this a a young adult book about alien invasions, or is this a book about young adult aliens invading? That's a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that'll be the next one. There we go. Right. <laughs> Have your have you gotten what kind of response have you gotten from your colleagues as far as wait you're writing a science fiction book yeah has there been any kind of pushback on that are people kind of looking at you sideways a little bit yet no people are really positive and supportive um, I think especially people who have a prosecutorial background we're really storytellers and when I first started having cases, you know, from the moment I had the case, I was already thinking in my head, how am I going to frame this to the jury? What story am I going to tell? How, you know, how do you make it compelling? So I think in a way we are actually storytellers and a lot of lawyers become writers because I, I think we, we do write a lot as lawyers. Um, so yeah, people are, are really supportive. You know, I think some people say, why not, you know, why not books about crime or <laughs> crime novels? And I actually tried that and found I didn't enjoy it as much as just, you know, imagining kind of a totally different world and a totally different landscape and getting a little further away from my reality. I think some people are, are like that when, you know, it's like, leave your work at work, don't bring it home with you type of, of situation. And I can, I can totally understand wanting to write something that's completely outside what you do during the day because, you know, that just just the grind, I would imagine, is probably just at, at some point you just want to walk away from it for a little bit and sit down and do something else. Yes, yeah. Are you going to stay within the science fiction realm? Any, any fantasy, uh, any horror, any rom-com or anything like that? What's... Where do you want to Definitely go? not rom-coms, um, probably not horrors because I'm a chicken. Um, <laughs> everything scares me. Um, but I, I am also working on an adult thriller. Um, so, and uh, yeah, so I might write in other genres, but I, I think I could carve out uh, romance or rom-coms or, or probably not the direction I'd go. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> All right. Serena Strauss, thanks very much. I do have one thing. Somebody mentioned up here a question in the chat about that typewriter behind you. Asking if that was a Lego typewriter, but it looks like it's an actual real typewriter. It is a Lego typewriter. It is a Lego typewriter. Yes, my son, my son built it for me. <laughs> okay, all right, all right. See, typewriters for those of you youngins, typewriters is what we had before we had computers, and we would plink, 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 plink with paper and ink, 
and and that would be how we would write those things. So yes, Cam, you were right. There was a there was a Lego typewriter <laughs> on there. All right, Serena Strauss, thanks very much for being here. SerenaStrauss.com is the website. The book Reinception it is out now, and uh, I am reading it now. At some point in the very near future, I hope to have a review. And when the next book comes out, we'll have you in here to talk, and maybe maybe we'll bring you in on some panel discussions, and and we'll talk further about some things. I would love that. Thank you. All right. And thanks to all of you for being here and uh, taking us one more episode closer to number 500, December 30th. Mark your calendars. We will be having kind of a little bit of a blowout episode there. We're going to do some some uh, announcements and some uh, plans and schemes for the upcoming year. Uh, tonight, Mr. Harvey and I are going to be talking about callbacks and Easter eggs. We've seen a number of things lately, people talking about, well, these are a bunch of Easter eggs, and they're not. We're going to talk about what actually is an Easter egg and a callback, because some people need to be educated a little bit on this. All right, that's going to do it for us. Our social media, you can find us various different places. We do want to encourage you to join us over on Odyssey and Rumble in addition to uh, YouTube. And that's going to do it for us, folks. Do want to uh, thank you for being here. Don't forget to share the link, like, and subscribe if you haven't already. And remember, there are four lights. This has been a presentation of SciFiForMe.com. Copyright 2022 by Flaming Dog Media, LLC. All rights reserved. No portion of this program may be retransmitted without the express written consent of Flaming Dog Media. You're listening to Sci-Fi For Me Radio. 